welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Today is a real treat. The music in this intro is by my good friend, Andrea Keen Williams of the Saul to Paul Project. The featured music that you just heard is called The Hero, and it's available to download. And after the show, you will be able to hear Give It All Up. And I really like Give It All Up, and so you'll be able to hear it in its entirety on this show. And thank you to the Salt to Paul Project for granting me the permission to play your wonderful, beautiful gospel soul songs on my podcast. We had such an amazing discussion. As I continue to meet with more people and have conversations, I love people more and more. And Andrea did that for me in this conversation. And you're going to be able to tell we have so much fun. And she is so passionate about what she does. And she really knows who she is. I've learned a lot from Andrea over the last few years. I met her when I was going through kind of a religious questioning and metamorphosis and I met her in this unchurching community which was created by Richard Jacobson if you're not familiar with his work google him he's really cool and there was just so much to learn from her she has such an experience with her life and I just appreciated all the views that she was willing to share and she's always been so great about answering questions because as you'll hear she believes everything needs to be questionable Indeed, we need to question everything. And so we talk about music. We talk so much about music and all of her musical influences. We talk about her musical training. She is also a music teacher and just a teacher, just really a teacher. She is the most natural teacher. And I think maybe she doesn't even realize how often she is teaching. So much about music. And we. what I really love is we, we have so many commonalities in the interest of the music that we both like and um, it was just such an easy flowing beautiful wonderful conversation with another fellow sister it it was uplifting even in our, during our discussions about Kanye West and Donald Trump we were able to share our views and neither of us had to push against each other and I don't think I'm in that much disagreement with her but I just really appreciated her view and so if you're willing I encourage you to compassionately consider the views of Andrea Keen Williams of the Salt to Paul Project. Enjoy the episode. real it's yeah. just that is it so much man-made or is it just a natural occurrence is it the ebb and flow of the earth i mean we do a lot of stuff to mess up the earth but 
you know, I don't know. That's just where I am. I do believe in taking care of your environment, you know, being conscious of all of those things. But, um, and um, I'm not really, like, I know there's a big uproar against the young lady, Greta Thunberg. I'm not really upset at, you know, her having a cough or anything. I just, I guess I just feel like there's so much deliberate misinformation put out there mm-hmm. that um, I just feel like everything is questionable. You know, everything is questionable. There's always some sort of spin on everything. And a lot of times it's political, so. Yeah, and I like that. Yeah, I think everything should be questionable. Like, it, yeah. it kind of put us up against the wall where they're like, you better not question this because that, therefore you're denying science. And you're like, well, right. but science is like asking questions. So exactly. science would want to be questioned. And science wouldn't be a dignified uh, focus if it didn't take questions so it's like no we're supposed exactly. to ask some things we that's how we wrestle with things we ask questions exactly yeah exactly. so i spent all day today watching like as many videos of the salt to paul project as i could oh okay so what i went back say? like be, 10 years you can tell me oh yeah yeah we go back that far yeah and no i loved them all um there i don't i don't know gospel music very well like, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you a name of a song, but I know when I hear it, I know it's gospel right. music. But um, there were there were so many songs that, and, and I don't, do you, you write most of your own music, don't you? Yeah, myself and my co-founder, Chris Phelps, shout out to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, we either collaborate on it, or he writes some of them, and then I write some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. do you also do covers? Very rarely do we okay. do covers. That's like a big thing for us, you know. Um, original. I, music. I think a lot of people do covers. I, I like to hear original music, and I just don't think I would be even that great at doing a lot of covers. I just feel like, you know, it's best if I just stick to what I know. <laughs> Every now and then, but not really. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would be hard. Um, I love music, but I'm I wouldn't. I'm not a singer. I mean, I will sing, but I, I appreciate music, but I would think in a cover, it would be hard to really truly get back into the truth of that song because songwriters are, are singing, are, they're writing from their hearts and their experience and their feelings. And so I would think that would be a, you have to almost get into that essence of that feeling right. when that song was written to cover it. And if you're not capturing right. it, you might come off really inauthentic. Like you just trying to cover the song because it's popular. It's not because you feel it or something. That's true. Yeah, and to that point, like outside of Soul to Paul, I do sing a lot of songs that I don't like. And so, I, but I, I agree with you what you're saying because I feel like if you don't, and I say this to the band a lot, you can't really play a song that you haven't internalized. Yeah. Whether it's a cover song or not, you have to have some sort of connection with that song. It has to be an interconnection with that song that you have. Mm. Or you're just playing notes. You know what I'm saying? And that's not really going to, that's a misuse of the language because music is a language. So you, you really, I feel that whatever song you do, it, it should, there should be an internal connection. If I can't connect to a song, I definitely can't sing it. So mm-hmm. I think that might be the number one reason why we don't do a huge amount of covers because mm-hmm. it's, it's hard for me to really, because when I sing, I don't even look at myself as so much a singer, but I'm, 
I feel like me and the whole band, we're kind of there to bring people an experience. Yeah. You know, we want to we bring something to them that's going to touch their hearts. So it has to be something that we have all, you know, lived through or experienced some kind of way. And, you know, no matter how small, we have to have a real connection with that song in order for us to bring it to our audience in an authentic way. So mm. I think that's the thing that's gotten us across the best over the years. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways in which your music can connect with people. You have all the different components, all the different instruments, all the right. different voices. And you really bring together like a poetry of all your hearts and produce this one big poem. So where did, where did the name come from? So, wow. So the, the, the idea for the name, it's got to be, it's got to be about 15 to 20 years old. It, it just came from just my experience walking with Christ and, and the experience I had of being changed. And I guess early on in my walk, I felt like the experience of being changed, it was so dramatic that I, I compared it to, to Paul's conversion. Yeah. And so in those days, you know, and you know, growing up in Sunday school, you're taught a certain narrative about Paul's conversion, about how his name was changed from Saul to Paul. So it was kind of play on that phraseology. I mean, and of course, coming to find out later, the longer you live, the more you learn, you know, that it wasn't necessarily a name change. It was just that Saul was his Jewish name. And among the Gentiles, he was known as Paul. So I guess since he was sent to the Gentiles and him coming from such a traditional Jewish background, maybe it was looked at as, oh, he's, you know, he's got a different name or whatever. But really Saul and Paul is the same name, but just within different cultural contexts. But that's the origin of the name. It's just kind of the idea of Paul's um, road to Damascus conversion and how I felt like when I found Christ or you know, better, better said when he found me that it was really a huge change. Like it was like, it was like literally coming to life, coming to life from the dead. And I didn't really get serious about writing music until I had that revelation of Christ. And um, after that, I, I started writing music and I couldn't write anything. I couldn't write about anything else. Like, and I like all kinds of music. You know, I love R&B. I love jazz. Um, I'm in the D.C. area, so I grew up listening to go-go music and going to go-go's. I love classical, um, reggae. I love all kinds of music. I'm not really, you know, I'm not beholden to the gospel of genre stylistically, yeah. although I think it's one of the most brilliant genres out there. Um, I can probably write, you know, if I'm inspired to do so, I could probably believe right any genre, but my message would always have to harken back to Christ. And, and it's not because of any kind of compulsion, but it's honestly the only thing that comes out of me is songs to him. And it's just always been that way um, mm. ever since. You know what I'm saying? It just kind of naturally flowed from the relationship that I had with him. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite an experience. And just to tell you about the band a little bit. Um, yeah. So I um, I used to be a worship leader in the early 2000s. And 
I did that for about seven to give or take 10 years. Um, because after the seventh year, I went through a three-year transition out of the institutional church. So I was kind of fluctuating in and out. And then I think the 10th year, I was finally gone for good. But it was within that institution as a worship leader, um, my friend that I grew up with in church, Chris, we we just wanted to do music. And I, I wanted to record this solo project. And I needed help. I'm like, I'm a writer, a singer, songwriter, but I needed somebody to help me produce it. So he came mm-hmm. in and helped me produce it, him and a couple of other guys. And my first CD was a solo CD. But all of the people that I brought in to help me, I mean, we just gelled so well at the time that we ended up creating the band. And when we needed a name, that's when I came up with Saul to Paul, even though the name was already with me. I was thinking that would be like my ministry. I felt like it was a ministry God gave me. And then when everybody came together, I was like, okay, this all makes sense. This, this whole group of people is saltable. And so we just kind of went from there. Um, uh, so I did that first solo project in 2006. And then we had like a group. The group got pretty big over the years, got up to like 14 people. So, wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a movement. And then, um, and then we went through some internal changes and, and we got um, cut down. So it's now, it's eight of us now. We've had some friends come and go. And there's, you know, been disagreements. It's, it's you know, band stuff. Stuff mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. You know, just keeping it real. We're all human. Um, but, but the group that we have now, it just seems like, you know, we've gelled together. We've been together for most of the 12 years that Saul and Paul has been playing together. Wow, and uh, we've released three songs since 2016, and um, working on some other stuff. Um, hopefully, for the near future. You know, we're like a family, and I probably say that a lot when we post. And I, I get a lot of. It may sound strange, but I get a lot of spiritual enrichment just from the fellowship of playing music. With oh, I can imagine these people. You know what I mean? And it, yeah. it's, it's more. It's more to being in the band than just playing the music and going out and doing engagement. It's, you know, there's relationships built. There's, you know, there's fights. There's infighting. There's, you know, there's struggles. There's things that everybody in the group goes through that people have to support each other through. There's deaths in the family. There's children born. You know, it's all that life stuff mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. that really gels you together as people. And then when you get together and play, it's just like, you know, we, you know this is us, you know. We're like you- family you all speak the same language, the same musical language. So it's like you relate to each other in this connection that's almost um, amplified in comparison to just our daily exchanges. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you said that you couldn't start writing music until you'd gone through these kind of changes and you were making changes with, was it your beliefs and what you were willing to except that your church was teaching you. I know that I met you through, I think that like Richard Jacobson's unchurching community, I think that's where I discovered you. And so I'm yeah, wondering if, if your foundation and formation of your band and, and your creative spark and really beginning to write music stemmed from you kind of uh, going through a religious transformation as well or a new understanding. I can say because so so let me take you to the timeline. So I started writing music like to and from the Lord 
like probably I'm 43 now. So it's been over 20 years. So, and the first um, CD that I recorded was in 06. And that was before I separated from the institutional church. So really Saul to Paul started out as an entity that the basis for our presentations and ministry was institutional churches. We did a lot of our events there. And, um, and it was in 07 where I started having the awakening of, wait a minute, you know, I will say uh, what I appreciated about the church that I attended before I started to pull out is that, and this, this, you know, full disclosure, my aunts were the pastors. So it was already a rogue church because it was led by women. But one thing that I liked about the church is that they allowed you to ask questions. And it it was one of those churches where when you came to Sunday school or Bible study, you didn't just sit there and take notes and recite it and, you know, and these are our beliefs and this is what I'm preaching, write it down, remember it and believe it. It was the kind of engaging, they engaged us in dialogue. Um, one of my aunts who was the assistant pastor, she, she has her doctorate in theology from Wesley Theological Seminary and she founded her own college. So mm-hmm. she's a brilliant woman. And my other aunt who was the head pastor of the church, She's like, she, uh, people would look at her and say, this is a deliverance person. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but she's somebody who, who she could like go out on the street and preach and preach to homeless people or drug addicts and see them like delivered and set free and restored. She's the kind of person who ministers to probably what you would think might be the scariest or most unapproachable kinds of people. But she could, she's the kind of person who will serve those kind of people. So there, um, there was a lot of good spiritual formation that took mm. place in that environment. And my music was a part of that. So I can't take nothing away from that. It's just that the spiritual formation was so good to me. I believe is that it, I, it, it served its purpose. I, I outgrew it. And yeah. when you outgrow those environments, you're not supposed to outgrow those environments because it, those environments are built on filling up the seats and having people there so you can do church and have service and worship leading. But I feel like, no, well, I feel like it served more of a purpose of, well, you had to grow spiritually so you can go out and actually live and engage with the world and, mm-hmm. and be. But that, when you look at it that way, it kind of, it kind of kills the whole man-made premise of we got to have this edifice we have to have this organization we have to do things this way we have to establish this for years to come and and then the the church or the organization becomes the legacy as opposed to having a life full of faith and love that spreads to everybody that should be the real legacy but the legacy within the institution is let's build this institution let's make it last forever let's pass it down to our descendants and just let it be but, um, you know, the more I learned of God in that community, I learned that it can't be that way because God is not stagnant. God mm-hmm. keeps moving and growing and expanding. So you can't yeah. stay. You know what I mean? Oh, that's you tough to hear, to too, though, for a lot of people yeah. to, to, to hear that. Yeah. Well, if the universe is expanding, God is. And that means that God maybe is not so immutable. I mean, it, I, I don't. I think it's, it depends on what your definition of expansion is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible says that 
of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. So that sounds to me like he's expanding. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, if he he told us to be fruitful and multiply, what do you think he's doing? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. So I just, you know, so I just can't, I just feel like he's that kind of God. Now, I'm still very, I probably still have a lot of fundamental Pentecostal ways. So I do believe God is immutable, but I believe within his immutability, God is limitless. So it's not for us to say, you can't, to put it in a cliche, you can't put God in a box. Our perception of the universe really is still just a little box for God. I mean, he's a lot bigger than that. So, yes, God is and it's, so it's, much bigger. And it's been a lot of hard lessons with that. You know, I, I used to, um, and before I will say this, before I even got into institutional church, because when I grew up, I was, I came up in a household of church rejects. Both of my parents came up in the apostolic church and ended up leaving. There was a lot of issues. Um, and so my mom and my dad, they both went through these spiritual journeys where it was kind of murky you know my dad kind of went his own way they ended up splitting up and my mom went through this christian agnostic thing where she believed in christ but lots and lots of questions so i grew up in an agnostic household with a church background and so but i also had uh from a very young age i had a um a certainty about the existence and reality of Christ that I couldn't deny no matter what. So even though I was in the agnostic household, I was still convinced about who Christ was. Now I wasn't convinced about how he was because Mm. I came up in the Pentecostal church and I've had to reject a lot of the imagery of Christ that is in Pentecostalism, but I knew he was, he was. What kind of imagery? What kind of imagery do you think you that you decided to reject? Just a wrathful God. The mm. only God that you knew in Pentecostalism was a wrathful God. It, uh, it was a God who was absolutely determined to send you to hell. And and I know some of my Pentecostal um, friends and family would be like, well, you're kind of overstating it. But, you know, from the vantage point of a four-year-old, five-year-old child, that's actually not an overstatement. It, it's actually how it feels. Mm-hmm. It, because... It's how that's how it was delivered to us. It was delivered to us as don't dance, don't cuss, don't drink. They're telling five year olds not to drink, smoke, and cuss, (laughs) not to dance, or you're going to hell. You know what I'm saying? And that's not the gospel. That's that's a bunch of man made rules. But those are the things that they tell you not to do. And then another doctrinal point within Pentecostalism is um, speaking in tongues. So a big part of the evidence of having the Holy Spirit is they call it initial evidence. This is in classical Pentecostalism. There's a lot of different forms of Pentecostalism, but I came up in classical Pentecostalism, which is even different from my parents' apostolicism, which is much more toxic. But in classical Pentecostalism, the initial evidence of um, having the Holy Spirit is actually speaking tongues. So oh, I didn't do that for my, can't my do entire that. early life. I mean, look, okay, it's it's complicated, man. How do you do it? <laughs> just I just read a book, actually, a fiction book, 
Um, mm -hmm. And they were talking about that very topic. And I, I had to go do some digging because I'm honestly, I think I, I've been told that that's popular in like charismatic churches too. But if I'm being honest, mm -hmm. I'm not really all that familiar with charismatic systems either. And mm -hmm. it was such a common thing throughout this book. And, um, but it, it was, it was set from um, uh, a culture in, in Georgia, a church culture, a black church culture. And mm -hmm. just upon some conversations I had with the woman who wrote it, I found that that was, was just a, a part of that kind of culture that the speaking in tongues is what qualifies it. And so everyone in this book was like doing it. And I'm going, I'm missing out. I don't know how yeah. to do this. I've never even met anybody who knows how to do it. But have you actually yeah. met people who speak in tongues? My my entire it's 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 the it's the it is the how can I put this? It's the ocean I was birthed in. Wow. It's I don't that is it's so ingrained in who I am as a person that I wouldn't like it it's just natural to me. I'm, my parents are apostolic. The apostolic doctrine, they believe that you cannot be saved at all unless you speak in tongues. Dang. I don't, they, it's a very staunch. So speaking in tongues is a point of salvation for apostolics. And, and a lot of this classical, a lot of the apostolic Pentecostal um, Christian culture started in the early 20th century with the Azusa Street Revival, which was, I don't know for sure, but it seems like it was a real move of God because what happened in that revival was that blacks and whites were coming together and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's like ridiculous for people in that time period to be coming together. Black people, white people, women all coming together and worshiping God together. So there was some move of God there, but later down the line, it started to break off and divide. It started breaking off first into black and white. So the black side, you had the um, apostolics and Pentecostals. And then on the white side, you had the charismatics. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it, it's, it was started off as what was probably a, a, um, a genuine move of God. It turned into a religious movement. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed into more and more just religious stuff that really doesn't have any meaning and so for me um i have spoken in tongues and i believe it's real um yeah. what what i had to learn from the lord is that um obviously that's not proof that he's his he has union with me that's not the proof the, the proof is in our faith yeah. so i don't really um i don't do it that much anymore i don't it's probably been years since i've done it but when I first came back to the Lord in my early 20s, um, it was a big thing on my head because I had such a religious filter from the past that I was like, okay, and I found God again. Aren't I, am I, I supposed to be speaking in tongues or something? And eventually, mm -hmm. you know, God gave that to me. But then with that, he said, what you need to understand, I've always, I've always been with you. So you don't need to, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, it's it's been very very interesting. I've I've had to peel back a yeah. lot of layers, and um, and I've had some really great people in my life who have helped me learn learn God. But the the people who help you learn God the best are the ones who keep pointing you back to Him for yourself, yeah. not the ones that make you depend on them to know Him because. At the end of the day, God wants to relate to each and every person one-on-one. -on -one. He doesn't want people to have go-betweens. 
Mm. And, um, you know, that's the big thing, you know? That's the big thing. (laughs) So you said, so we were interacting on Facebook today. You shared this video by this woman, Queen Shahrazad Ali. Uh. Yes, yeah, <laughs> thank you. But you said that you were kind of you grew up around that kind of ideology. What are yes. you familiar with it? So <laughs> I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about like what do you know about it? It was intriguing yeah. to me. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> and see, I have to credit my mother with all of this different kind of experiences that I've had because I had an apostolic mother went from being apostolic to agnostic and kind of when I get get into my teen years she's getting into black nationalism okay so well your mom um, was just evolving right she was and 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 she's like she's firmly rooted in Christ but it's just like growing up as a child I would never look at her and be like oh she's definitely a Christ follower she is now but she went through this um I don't even want to call it a phase because I think it's important for black people to understand their culture and explore and understand the history and all of the contributions and all that good stuff. But she went through a period of time and I don't think she'll mind me sharing it. She, she got into black nationalism through a man that she was dating. And the, not only was the man toxic, but the version of black nationalism that he kind of influenced her and our whole household with, it was misogynistic, of course, and he was an abusive man. He beat her. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it kind of it skewed everything. And so Shahrazad Ali, she's just one of the, you know, many people that we listen to within that movement that kind of had a toxic take on Black nationalism. Um, you know, and she's not the only one. I'm going to use another person, the founder of Kwanzaa. I believe his name is Mylana Karinga. So a lot of people celebrate Kwanzaa because they want to, you know, capture Black culture. But one of the things I learned about him when I was young was that they were actually very toxic towards women and that they even tortured some women. Mm. So there, there's, there's a dark side to the Black nationalist movement. Um, and Shahrazad Ali, she's part of the Nation of Islam. So... Mm. And look, nothing against, I, I wish I could say nothing against the Nation of Islam, but the truth of the matter is, it is a hateful organization. I it's agree. a reactionary, it's a reactionary racist organization. And it was not founded by black people. It was founded by a, a man from an Arab man. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I don't know what his goal was in infusing that type of ideology into our community, but it really created a lot of hatred and, and sectarianism and it, and it veiled it in things like building up the black man, building up the black woman, you know, um, reclaiming black heritage. But underneath it all, you look at um, Elijah Muhammad, he was abusing young women. He was having multiple children by different women and trying to cover it up. So it's the same old BS that you find within the Catholic church and, and, and the Protestant church. It's yeah. just a whole, it's another religious veil over messy crap that people do. And it, for me, I, in, in that sense, if that's what it takes for me to reclaim my black identity, I don't want to do that. I, I just, 
I've seen too much. And then I saw it firsthand with this supposedly black nationalist man in my house. You know, he came into our home. He was dating my mother. He was living there. He proclaimed himself to be my father. And he was going to like make us all this, you know, black nationalist family. And it was not a good experience. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody might critique it and say, well, you know, that was just your experience. But how, unfortunately, that's a very common experience for that you know, for that type of person. I'm not saying all black nationalists are like that. There's a type of toxic type of black nationalist these days that's called a hotep. Well, he was 30 years ago, he was the hotep type of his time. And he knew a lot of things, but they were all weren't good things. And so, you know, he, he loved Shahrazad Ali and, you know, he you know, wanted my mom to, you know, familiarize herself with it. And God bless my mom. She's still, she's still her, even though she accepted this man into her life. She couldn't stand that woman's teacher. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course she's not, she didn't like that teacher at all. And um, It's, it's still know, very misogynistic teaching. I mean, it feels like it's oh, it justifying and she's like, well, that's just our men, but it's like, well, no, not entirely. No. It's not, it's not our men. It's, it's, it's like, and that's what I was telling my friend that we, I was conversing with. Actually, she hates black men because if you really believe that all of these black men are beating on their women and you believe the antidote to that is to say, just beat them a little less, <laughs> then you really are a sick person. <laughs> that's what you think the antidote is. <laughs> so I kind of like, you know, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I probably had some triggers and, and trauma issues connected to that. And, um, doesn't mean I don't love my blackness, don't love my people, but you know, there's, there are positive black nationalists who, you know, I appreciate Mar Marcus Garvey. You know, there's lots of people out there who set a much better example than Elijah Muhammad or Shahrazad Ali or anybody like that. And I mean, you know, peace and love to those I know and love who are part of NOI. I just can't get with that. I don't think it's good for our community and I don't think it's good for anybody. Just the same way I don't like the white nationalists. <laughs> well, and you know, I think, I mean, I have a lot of reverence and respect for Black Panther Party. I think the problem that, that stemmed from that movement, I mean, it grew yeah. so fast. People didn't fully understand even the practices of the nation of Islam. And then you right. had communism creeping in there too. And so you had all these people wanting to create all of their own systems basically. Right. And so the original foundation of, I think like what their black nationalism was about, especially within the black Panther party was just about saying, fine, we're our own people. Then we'll take care of ourselves. And from right. then with everything, when people are going after more power and more authority and, and, and to be seen by more people, it always kind of ends up getting corrupted. But yeah, I agree. There's absolutely. There, and, and the other thing with the Black Panther Party, if I'm not mistaken, it was infiltrated by the government. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yep. my thought is that Quintel people Pearl. got and tore it down from the inside, and then the government took them out. Yeah, and I, I'm not, and I don't, you know, I don't claim to know everything about the Black Panther Party, but. I know looking back on the Black Panther Party, if I had to choose between NOI and Black Panther Party, I probably would join Black Panther Party because they just seem more common sense about it. You yeah. Know, they didn't put a religious spin on it. It was, this is just kind of common sense what we need to do. Yeah. And it so, was yeah. about the people and nothing else. Right. Yeah. Right. I agree. So, 
Is Kanye a, a gospel rapper? What do you think about Kanye? I, you know, I was really shocked. <laughs> um, I was shocked, but in a good way. Like, I've never been a Kanye West fan, not since his first, like, college dropout. It's, I've never just oh, gravitated okay. to music. Um, you know, I always gravitated to people like Biggie, Tupac. Um, I actually was big on N.W.A. growing up. So, oh, yeah, me too. I love that. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. I, yeah. I had to. I was quiet about that though. I wouldn't let my girlfriends know I liked N.W.A. because they were like, "Yeah, I mean, N.W.A. was dope." <laughs> yeah. And um, so Kanye was like, "I'll I'll put him in second generation conscious rap." So and and I liked conscious rap growing up. Conscious rap makes I think about people like Public Enemy, um, mm. people like Dig Diggable Planets. Um, mm. who else? Um. They're skipping me. It's like a bunch of them coming up in my mind. That I can't sort them out. But there's a whole set of conscious rap people that came out in the 80s that were just, you know, they really had knowledge. Um, um, I, I love Wu-Tang Clan. I'm not putting them in the conscious rap category, but I love them too. But um, the X-Clan, my God, were they really, like, conscious? Um, so Kanye came... I think he came in a second wave of conscious rappers and I, but for whatever reason I couldn't get with him because he wasn't really that conscious because he's still talking about the other kinds of stuff and it's fine. I just, I couldn't get with him. Maybe I was just getting too old for hip hop or I needed a break from it. So I never- You do not get too old for hip hop. Don't say that. <laughs> no, and it's true because I, look, I love KOD. Um, you know, I got people I love on Kendrick. So- I've got people I listen to. I've never, I've never been a Jay Z fan. Um, but yeah, so Jay Z is hit and miss with me. Some I do, and some I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> right, right. So, so for Kanye, when he came out with, um, well, first before he came out with the rap thing, he came out with the choir. Mm. And he, so, if Kanye is nothing else, he is a marketing genius. So before this gospel rap thing came out, Kanye had to convince all of the church people that he was, you know, with them and he had to be able to sell it to us. He couldn't sell it to us unless he convinced us that he was really on God. So he's doing this super choir thing or whatever you call it. And he's doing it for months and months and months. And I'm telling you, he, he picked the best singers on planet earth for this choir. And he's smart because he did a lot of gospel classic songs mm. that people grew up on. So people are getting sucked in and we're like, goodness, they, they, I mean, everybody in this choir, thing. there's no bad singers in this choir. Like everybody can sing. So we're all getting sucked in. So by the time this rap album comes out, I'm thinking, okay, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to listen to it. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it an objective listen. If it's trash, I'm going to say it's trash. But, um, but when I listen to I know, I know, it's crazy. So when I listen to it, I was like, okay, you know what? I definitely hear that there's Christ has been revealed to him. Now, and the message that I heard coming from his, all of his tracks was very consistent. And it's really a critique on gospel music because his, his album was more on message with the actual gospel message than most gospel music actually is. It's really a rebuke to a lot of gospel music because message-wise, message-wise, his message was like bullseye. It was like, it's a very pure gospel message there. 
And so it, he got a lot of different reactions, but um, I felt nothing but God in that in that thing. So I can't hate on that. You know what I'm saying? If this person, who am I to say, God touched this man and, and revealed Christ to him and inspired him to write this, who am I to say, oh, you know, he just trying to, okay, he might be just trying to do whatever. He might be trying to just get money. He might be just trying to do this. He might be just trying to do that. But whatever he's doing, he's doing it better than a lot of the actual gospel people are doing. So mm-hmm. I, I downloaded the whole thing, you know, I and, and I've listened to it once or twice. I don't listen to it all the time, but I, I appreciated what he did. Now, I separate that from who he is politically, because this is what happens to a lot of people who find Christ in this country. A lot of people who find Christ, they come to Christ and there's a pure heart for Christ and then they get sucked in. They get sucked into some sort of religious stream and that religious stream kind of directs the way they think. They might get pulled into the evangelical right, which he did. They might get pulled into the progressive left, which to me is no better than the right. Just a little bit better, a little bit better, but not really much better than the right. But he got pulled into the right. And I think he might be being influenced by by um, by the religious right. And that's fine. I'm sure he can take some good things from that. But I just hope that, you know, that he just has some people around him who are pure for Christ, who can help him to just learn about the kingdom. Because mm-hmm. a lot I can see people coming in and using him. And they're already doing it. There's a lot of people coming in and using his sound bites and everything to push their political agendas and to push their ideas Mm. and that's well and good but i just i think he had i truly believe he had an experience with god and um and i have no issue like this is the first thing that he's done in like 20 years and i'm like wow this is great so yeah that's my take on kanye (laughs) i like that that you're like well i don't doubt that he didn't have an experience by god and that's what i think a lot of even what theology is about learning about like how to experience mm-hmm. God. And then when yeah. you hear people tell us that they experienced God, we're like, no, you didn't. Exactly. How do you know? Yeah, they could have. I'm, I feel that way. Um, I mean, I feel, I feel like I didn't really have a full frontal experience of God until like with my husband, he forgave me after our infidelity. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I'd been searching for it and it took me messing up big time to find it. But when you have mm-hmm. that experience, it, changes everything and so Absolutely. yeah i i agree and i mean i see that too like i have some friends who are like kanye's just being brainwashed he's being brainwashed and i'm like by who the illuminati yes no <laughs> no for real they believe it and i'm like stay off youtube yeah. okay like just stay off the youtube um right but i yeah i don't that that falls into that whole idea of like we don't diminish other people's truth like if they're speaking their truth to you don't tell them it's wrong just because you can't believe it. The reason you can't believe it is because you get to believe whatever you want to believe. Like, you know what I mean? I feel like that's what we do anyway. We can be shown the truth of something. And if we're more comfortable believing what we want to believe, then we're just going to believe what we want to believe. That's why when we hear negative things about people, we'll be like, yeah, that's true. Why is it true? Because I want it to be. Well, why do you want? And then that raises the question, why do you want it to be true? So exactly what that brings to mind for me is like, why do people want what they hear about Donald Trump to be true? That's a good question. 
Um, I was, I, me and my husband were just talking about this today. You know, before Donald Trump ran for president, were people really hating him? No. You know what I mean? No, Jay-Z was talking about him. I mean, Donald <laughs> Trump, look, Donald Trump has been in a, so much black music. He, he's like a rap icon. Yeah. You know, they, they put him all, we use his name as a slang term. So, I mean, you can Google pictures and he's got pictures with Hillary Clinton and all of these Democrats. Like, to me, I don't, I've never really seen him as being different. He's an elite to me. He, yeah. It doesn't matter whether he's right or left. He's an elite. And I feel like on that level, it really doesn't matter. They're all friends. This yeah. is like a chess game for them. Yeah. So I think that now, now I will say this. I do believe he's racist <laughs> only because of his, um, because of his uh, the practices that he engaged in as a landlord. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have to be a rich white man to be a slum slum lord. I I know that there's you know black slum lords everywhere too. So I, I believe that he you know engaged in some discriminatory discriminatory practices as a landlord, and um and and that's racist. And and but that's that just means he's part of the big overall systemic issue. I okay, mean, can I know, jump in there real quick? And yeah. now, now that you you bring up a good point though. So you said that when you get that rich, it doesn't matter anymore. So what that's is what makes me think he's racist for anyone that doesn't make money. He's racist against uh, Hispanic people crossing the border. He doesn't want people crossing the border, and we know how he treats people who are making it hard for him to expand his business and do what he wants to do. But it, when, right. when it comes to stepping over those lines of separating me between you and the dollar. Your race is no longer a part of it. Do you think that's maybe the case with him? Maybe that's why nobody thought he was racist because when you all making that kind of money, you only see green. But he's still looking at everybody else differently and separating them. He is, and and, and let me say this: I, I think there's some truth to that. I I will say this though: I I I truly believe that, and this may be wrong because this is just my personal theory. I think that he has been heavily influenced by the policymakers on the right. And a lot of them are religious and a lot of them are racist. Yeah. Even if he's not racist in the traditional sense, in order for him to be part of that machine, I don't even think he's as anti-immigrant as, as he's portrayed himself to be. I should hope I not like considering his wife. Exactly. Mm. But I mean, when you really think about it from a logical standpoint, I feel like he he has to ride that boat because that's what his base wants. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I don't even know if that, because I I feel like somebody like him, I would think that he would benefit from the cheap labor. So I don't think he would be like on this big bandwagon to stop people from crossing the border. I don't even remember, like, when did that even become an issue until he started running? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I just feel like when I see Donald Trump, I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm sure he's racist, but I don't, I don't know. It's not because of what he's done in office that I think he's racist. I think he's racist in, in my own biased sense of what I think of rich white men. They're probably racist. In my mind, I'm thinking they probably got a little racism there, as wrong as that may be. Now, in his case, he, he might not have had that kind of thing going on with him before he ran, but he, once he became a candidate, he jumped on that racist horse. And he rode it all the way to the White House. 
because this is his base because he knows that's how they think. I I think he's pretty clever in that aspect. Like that's why he's on Twitter. He's watching what people, how people interact and he's mimicking it. I mean, cause we all mimic something. So now he's got to mimic his base and then, you know, that rouses base up and makes his base feel like they're more justified and all of the shit that they think they have to be reactionary about. And so I think they just keep mimicking each other. And I'm like, guys, stop. I think it's some truth to that. And one of the biggest mistakes that I think a lot of people make, and especially a lot of the really, really progressive people, they keep calling Donald Trump a dummy. Mm -hmm. You do not get to the White House if you're a dummy. He is not a dummy. He is a master marketer. He knows how to use the media to to make himself look bigly or whatever, you know, like he's not a dumb person. He cannot be dumb and get Mm -hmm. as far as he got. Yes, he had the privilege of riches and all of that good stuff. But nah, he 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 he's a master marketer. He knows what he's doing. And he's and, even um, changed the way that he speaks to people because I've gone back and looked at interviews he did like even just ten years ago, twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. He was far more articulate with his mm-hmm. speech. And he is mm-hmm. and it's like he, he's reading the teleprompter and they've I see it sometimes and I can't have a wonder. He's reading the teleprompter. They have something very well articulated laid out there. And he's like, I'm going to dumb this down. I think that's why you hear that pause and he kind of looks like, how can I dumb this down? No joke. And I feel that way because he's just changed the way he speaks so much. But, and I think we do that. I mean, naturally we do that. We change our, our speech for the people we're around. And so he's got to appease his base. And if we are being honest, his base are people who speak more simply. And that's fine if, right. you want it, if you speak simply, but that's just not what right. we're accustomed to. We went from Barack Obama, talented orator galore, to right. Donald Trump trying to appeal to simple speakers. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I just, I, and I was shocked that he won. I really was. Me too. I, I thought that this was Hillary's turn. I didn't vote for her, um, but... You know, I thought she had it in the bag, <laughs> but when he won, look, when I remember the night he won, when he walked on the stage, he looked shocked. He looked like, damn, I won. What am I going to do now? <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch. I know for me, for 2020, I'm watching all of this political stuff, but I'm reserving all of my opinions because I realized politics to me, and it's sad to say this because the things that happen in politics actually equal life and death for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But politics is, is no different from sports. It's, and when I look at the commentators, when I look how people strategize, it's like, I could, I could just like, I can watch politics or I can put politics to the side and I can just watch the NBA season. And it's like the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, all a game. you know what I'm saying? It's all a game to me. It's all a game. It just doesn't even feel, it, you know, on a local level, maybe a little bit, um, it's a little bit more real to life, but on the grand scale that they're doing with all of this impeachment and, and all of these wars and all of this stuff, it, it feels like it's just a game to them. But the only difference is the people who lose are the poor people are a lot of the black and brown people overseas who are getting bombed, their kids getting splattered against the walls. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's despicable to me. So it's just like, it's just like something to watch. I, I, I've come to learn that 
no matter what people say about your vote this, your vote that, and shout out to my ancestors who died for my right to vote. But unfortunately, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, these people are going to do what they want to do. The only mm-hmm. thing that's going to change the world is hearts being changed. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I'm getting up in age. I've lived long enough to see several wars. And this is the same script from 20, 30 years ago. It it's is. just a replay. It is. Absolutely. That's what I think they so. keep doing. They're like, okay, we need something really big for this election cycle. Go back the last couple of years. What haven't we done yet? And they just keep exactly. going over with the same narratives over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So let's not end this with Trump. Let's go to something more interesting. <laughs> yeah. What's in your playlist? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me look on the phone. No, I have a lot on my playlist. I don't listen to, ironically, a lot of music, though. You don't? And the reason, I don't. I don't listen to music on a regular basis because um, it music clutters my mind. I have a lot of musical ideas float, floating around in my mind. And a lot of times when I'm trying to write, I can't deal with the influence of all of the people in my, in my you know, on my playlist. So I, mm. I, I cut music off a lot. I listen to a lot of talk radio. Mm. Um, I really do. Or I just, you know, what, I what kind of radio, what kind of talk radio do you listen to? I listen to a lot of theological podcasts. What yeah. did I listen to last? Yeah. Cause I'm just, you know, I'm just a listener. Um, gosh, what did I used to listen to? I used to listen to a lot of, um, there's this theologian named N.T. Wright. Oh, I used to listen yep. to a lot of his, um, his talks. Before him, I listened to a lot of Dallas Willard, you know, just different people like that. Mm. Um, I listen to people that, you know, to enrich my mind. I also listen to a lot of people who I don't agree with, <laughs> mm. like John MacArthur, <laughs> you know. So, yes. Um, yeah, no, because people, you said something. You wrote something. I really appreciated that, like, um, even though you don't, you don't jive with certain theologies or something like that, you're still willing to be open to them. Yeah, I do. I just, you know, because we're all changing and we're all evolving. And, you know, I don't believe that we're saved by what we know. Mm-hmm. That would be so unfair. Our minds are limited. We're yes. saved by faith. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's, I, I, I rest in that. I, I can't fight all of these other battles about what I'm supposed to know because the older I get, the realize I don't know anything. Mm, no, me too. Yeah. But back to, so in my playlist, I listen to a lot of R&B. So, of course, you know, I love her. Yes. Um, You're the reason I listened to her. I had never heard of her before. I saw you post her video, and I was like, who is this? And I'm hooked on her now. And she's part of this new generation of R&B singers. So I love R&B singers. So I listen to a young lady named Summer Walker. Um, but I'm also like a huge Jill Scott, Erica Badu, Faith mm. Evans. So I, these are all my singers. My biggest inspiration as a songwriter is Stevie Wonder, like from my youth. I've just, he's just inspired my heart the most as a musician and as a singer. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Mint Condition. Oh like, yeah, you take, I can take Mint you condition. to like a who's who of 70s, 80s, 90s. One of my favorite producers um, from the 80s is Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Mm. Um, they they produce some awesome music. Like I write, I think I write like them too. I just, I love what they do. Yeah. Um, 
Frankie Beverly and Maze, <laughs> Sade. I mean, I love it goes Sade. on and on and on. Yeah, mm. Kelly Price. Um, mm. It's so many people. And then I'm, I've always loved gospel. Favorite gospel singer, Yolanda Adams. I love Donnie McClurk and um, Karen Clark, the Clark sisters, Kim Rell. Um, there's so many. The Hawkins family, the whole Hawkins family. Um, so, I mean, it just really, I, obviously, I'll say Black music has influenced me the most, but ironically, I, I was trained as a classical singer from age 14 to 24. So, I have a background singing classical music. So, what does that and mean? Are you also like opera trained? Well, I I did a couple of opera roles in college, but I wouldn't say I'm opera trained because I don't like I never did like professional opera roles. I I trained choral and classical. Yeah, and um, I did like little mini opera roles in college, but but that was my background: classical music, classical singing. And mm -hmm. um, back then, most people would not encourage me to sing gospel or R and B. They would say, "Honey, you need to stick with what you're good at." And, I was like, no, I really like this. And <laughs> so I just <laughs> are those two genres typically opposed to one another and that um classically trained would would, you know, look down their nose at the way that a person is using their voice in gospel and I'll I'll say yes, generally speaking. There's definitely some exceptions because I think over the years people have realized that classical technique translates into gospel really well but then there's a lot of facets of gospel that will absolutely not translate into classical like the screaming and squalling but a lot of that screaming and squalling is very essential to the sound of gospel not all the time but well, a lot but, of times yeah, yeah i mean that power Sometimes. all of a sudden yeah. they're just like filled with it. like right. wh who is that woman today exactly. uh lorraine lorraine stansel oh my god so, you know her, she's an example of somebody who probably has classical training, and she she could have probably sang on the Met stage just as easy as she sang at West Angeles Church of God. Like she has a phenomenal voice. So yeah. that's what I mean by that. Uh, there's some voices that could probably do either or, but you know, stylistically speaking, most people are like, well, if you're classical, you probably shouldn't be with the gospel. There's a really famous classical singer um, named Renee Fleming. She's like one of my favorites. And um, she's like a top soprano. She's probably retired now, but she, you know, she used to sing jazz, you know, behind mm. her teacher's backs and stuff. But I mean, just phenomenal, phenomenal opera singer. So I think wow. even though the standard is classical people need to stay classical, lots and lots of people have broken that rule. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I love breakers. that they do. I think that yeah. that creates a completely different sound even it does it um, really does i mean and you can have soul in any genre you know that can translate to any genre and and that's what's important i say this all the time what's important as a singer or a musician you got to have the technique you got to understand your craft your instrument but if you don't sing from an internal place you might as well sit down and shut up it has got yes. to come from the inside you have to do what you do from a place of passion or mm. just don't do it it's it's not even worth it. You gotta come from a, a real place. Yep. And I mean, I'm gonna be honest. That's uh, the only place I ever heard a lot of soul. I'm well, that I won't discredit too many of the people that I grew up with. But I was, my, thank God, my mom was like, I told, I was told all my life, black people were this, so immersion, and so that's all I had growing up was. 
black music mm-hmm. and the soul. And That's good. man, girl, seriously, sometimes you, you share videos and I'm like, she's playing my list from high school. <laughs> I love really? this. Oh my God. Like, That's cool. seriously, Anita Baker, uh, oh, yeah. Patty LaBelle, um, All day. I, Yolanda Adams, I got into when like people were like, you have to listen to Christian music. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it was the only one I knew that was Christian music, but okay. like Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, yeah. I grew up with all that. And I, and then I went to, I went from, and I was like the only girl that did not listen to country growing up either. And then I moved mm-hmm. into Minneapolis and it was like a whole new setting for me. And I think that's when rap oh, was what finally was that like? I went to Prince. That's, oh, that's no, we Prince, grew up Prince. Prince was, okay. Prince was like the staple. Prince and Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson, they were the staple in my house. Of course, like, yes. All my mom played when she cleaned. So, okay. Yeah, and I she like had all those Columbia House CD memberships, you know? So we had all oh, the music. Yes. My mom would get up at 6 a.m. and blare freaking Whitney Houston or freaking C- CNC Music Factory. Oh, yeah. no, I know they were a fake ass group. I love that woman's voice. So I know the, uh, the actual woman. Yeah. I love the actual yes. woman's oh, voice, yes. right? Her voice. Yes. What a scandal. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, seriously, this was, this was so much fun, Andrea. Thank it you is. so much. I'm going to make sure everybody knows how they can get in touch with you, how they can listen to the Saul to Paul project. And yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been glorious. Thank you for having me. This really made my night. I'm going to go grab me a shot of honey whiskey and go to bed. Oh my, <laughs> my Tennessee apple whiskey right here next to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's